Hey, what is up, y'all? Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Swing. I'm your host, Kyle Drink, and in this episode, we got Cheryl Anderson, and Cheryl is an incredible teacher. She's a top 100 teacher by Golf Magazine, top 50 by Golf Digest. Uh, I mean, she's out at the Mike Bender Golf Academy, and she just does incredible things. And selfishly, this is a great episode for me because I steal a bunch of their stuff. I mean, they're some of the best in the world with practice drills um, and really making it super effective their practice facility is second to none it's incredible so we talk about what go went into making that you know what's important to have in practice so this is a very actionable episode for everybody so let's dive right in with cheryl hey what's up i'm your host kyle drink and we're going beyond the swing hey cheryl hey kyle how are you (laughs) great how you doing I'm excellent. I appreciate you taking the time to do this on your, uh, I don't know if you call it a vacation or what you call it, but I'm sure it's a much needed break. Definitely. It's definitely my summer vacation. Yeah. Now, is it, is that hard for you to kind of step away for that long? Um, actually, no, it's a nice time for me to work on my game and I still teach a little bit up here. Do you? So you never really get away from it. There's always people that you know and they want some time so sure <laughs> but I it's different it's not all day every day right yeah yeah I mean it's just you know I mean I get what you do and I've, you know, I've done that kind of lifestyle for so long I feel like if I take two days off I'm bouncing off the walls so I'm I definitely know. envious that you can take the take the time for yourself and you know hopefully chill out a little yeah like I was hitting balls yesterday and then I see people I know in the range I'm like oh come on over. I'll be happy to take a look. Like I like taking a break from hitting and it's yeah, not a big deal. Gotcha. So, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you before I forget is you posted something on your social media a while back and it's been driving me nuts. It was this riddle. Like you brought these kids inside on a hot day and it was like this math riddle. I couldn't find it. I was trying to go back on your social media. It might've been about a year ago, but it was something to do with like blocks and it was like a math problem. And I oh, stared right. at that thing forever trying to figure out what that answer was. Do you remember what the riddle was? No, but I'll find it for you. I, okay. um, I gave them a task. Yeah. I remember that. It was like something I saw on the internet the night before. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I was like, this thing is genius. And I'm usually really good at that stuff. And I was like, I stared at that stuff forever and I was going to reach out to you and I just totally forgot. And then when we were going to do this, I, it sparked me again. It's like, I got to know the answer to this thing. Cause it's driving me crazy. All right. I'll, I'll try to track that down. Gotcha. <laughs> well, again, thanks again for, for doing this. I'm really excited to talk to you because, you know, my mission and, uh, you know, with getting to, you know, bug John about mental golf type and, you know, coming to shadow you guys. And, you know, I've always been fascinated with the performance and getting the most out of players. So that's, that's always my mission is to figure out the just absolute best route. And, I know how important technique is, and I think you guys are some of the best in the world at teaching it, but I know there's, and I've had the discovery a long time ago, there's more to it. And, you know, one thing I think that's so cool you guys do is just your practice setup. So first, I guess when you, when you guys moved from Timaquan to Lake Mary, now, I guess the first question is the legend true. Did Mike just pack everything up in the middle of the night? Yes. (laughs) So what happened there? Well, a new owner came in basically, and they wanted Mike to do things their way. Mm -hmm. 
and Mike has been very successful doing things his way. Mm-hmm. And they started wanting to take more of this and more of that. And he's like, you know what? This is no longer the Mike Bender Golf Academy. And I think what really struck the chord was when uh, they decided to come into the academy building and they're like deciding where they're going to put the hot dog stand. And mm-hmm. he's like, okay, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, he had been um, searching and we found a place across town. And he's like, we're out of here. And uh, we just packed it up the night before and they showed up the next day. They're like, what's going on? He's like, no, I'm done. Wow. I got to do things the way I want to do them or I'm not doing them. So I gave him a lot of credit. I mean, that was a huge step. Again, he was very successful at that place for probably 20 years. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, to pick it all up, hurl it across the street and then build a million dollar academy. Right. Mm. So this was his money. Nobody gave it to him. It was a huge leap of faith and he designed everything the way he wanted. And, um, it's, I couldn't imagine teaching at a better place, right. Getting, you know, people to do what we need them to do. Well, and that, so first of all, I mean, did you have uh, a piece in, some of that design or how did you guys come up with, I mean, it's, I've never seen a place like it. (laughs) Mike literally, um, he drew it on a napkin in like an hour. This is exactly what he wanted. And we were kind of like, you know, Mike, that's a little big. Maybe we should start a little smaller, you know, in the beginning, he's like, Nope, this is what I want. Okay. So (laughs) he drew up the plans, had a guy come over and, uh, it was built within a year. And we taught on the other side of the range for a year while this was being built on the back of the range. So it was really cool. I mean, we were all sardined into a tiny office too. There were six of us teaching out of like just a really small office. I don't know how we did it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it was all worthwhile. Yeah. So how, I mean, how would you describe the, the setup of that practice facility? I mean, I mean, to me, it's Mike said something, he goes, if you can't get better here, then you can't get better anywhere. You know, it's like when I was kind of down there hanging out with you guys one day and um, I'm looking around, like, you're not kidding. I mean, you guys have everything under the sun and it's, it's very well designed too, which I thought was really cool. So I know you guys have like the wedge range, you have the, the target poles, which I need to ask you about, cause I'm actually going to put some on my range and I wanted to ask you how you did it. Sure. Um, so maybe we just start there, but like, do you have a certain, I guess, design or idea of why things are the way they are? Yeah. Everything is carefully thought out of, I mean, Mike, Mike's like an engineer in his mind. Like most of the training aids we use, he designed them. Um, every square inch, like you said, of that place is used. Um, the building, we wish we had maybe another bay. There's only one indoor bay, but fortunately, Orlando, Florida, it doesn't rain too much. Um, but every square inch is utilized. The wedge range, I'll probably start with that. He designed that for Zach Johnson because Zach was, that was the weak link in, in his game prior to the year he won the Masters. Um, so Mike said, okay, I'm going to build this 
these four by four concrete blocks out in the range. I'm gonna set them from 30 yards to 100 yards and scatter them. So it requires um, an individual to have to always aim differently, right? Rather than just straight out 80, 90, 100. And um, there's also trajectory ropes up there so that you have to launch the ball through a certain window between like um, 25 and 35 degrees. Because most people, when they come out and we watch them hit wedges, they're ballooning them way up in the air. You know, they have sure. no control, no spin. So anyhow, um, that wedge range has been replicated, I think, in about 200 different courses now around the country. Um, but again, that's really how Zach Johnson was able to win the Masters the following year. Um, the first time he tried the wedge range, it took him 168 shots to hit all eight blocks. And you can't go to the four block until you hit the three block. And the year before he won the Masters, he did it in 50. Now, we have a board on the wedge range with mm -hmm. like amateur girl, amateur boy, pro man, pro female. And um, we have a boy up there who did it in 24 shots. Aaron Dew, he now plays at University of Cal Berkeley. Um, but you can't believe how inspirational that board is for our students because they get out there and they're like, I want to beat that record, right? Mm -hmm. And I can't believe somebody did it in 24 shots. It's impressive. <laughs> it What's is. the yardage? So, oh, it starts from 30 to hundred mm -hmm. yards. And is it just, is it, cause I know you got mass, so the yardage is consistent. So is it like 30, 40, 50, or do you scatter like 33, 45? No, just by 10 yard increments. Gotcha. Gotcha. And they're just and so concrete we blocks. Is, we have our students get a hundred golf balls and we see how many blocks they can hit in that batch of 100. And there's some students that can't get past the 40 block initially, right? Mm -hmm. And so by the end of the year, they're able to complete the wedge range with less than 100. And then once they can do that, then they're like challenging those records on the boards. Yeah. And now, if I have a newer golfer, I'm not going to require that they hit the block. I actually put cones out depending on what their skill level is, right? I'll give them a diameter of 30 feet. All right. Let's get it inside of that zone. Right. Mm -hmm. The block is really hard to hit. Yeah. What's the size of it? Um, it's four by four and there's cement and they're angled a little bit. Um, I think there's like maybe a four degree pitch. So when you hit the block, the ball just goes straight up in the air and people have so much fun, you know, yeah. it's a really yeah, fun I mean, thing for them to hit. I I've definitely stolen that from you guys. So back in Chicago, I, in my indoor bay, I would use, um, you know, I use four sites in there. So I would set up wedge challenges on there and have like a whiteboard dry board for leaderboards and stuff like that. And, Perfect. um, yeah, I've stolen a ton of stuff from you guys <laughs> about That's you great. knowing it, but, and then in my new spot here in Chattanooga, I built, I built them out of, um, plywood, but I made like little bullseyes essentially because they have a staple hole here that has a blind par five and they have a big bullseye there. So that's like their logo, but oh, I made great. like a bunch of plywood targets. They just stand up. Same thing. You hit them and they're loud as hell and everyone gets excited about it. Um, nice. but that stuff, I mean, to me has always been, and I think that's why my eyes light up when I go to your guys' place. Cause just hitting to a flag or a pole in a range can be yeah, kind of boring. boring. At least it was really boring for me when I was coming up, I just was not wired to sit there and just hit balls in the range. <laughs> um, the other benefit of these, the cement slabs is that the, the car can just drive right over them, pick up mm -hmm. the balls. 
yeah that is nice i gotta move mine which is kind of a pain but um, yeah yeah so that's nice um now for players that don't have that luxury is there things that you recommend they can use to throw out there to practice that on their own a good old towel yeah right yeah you just put towels out in the range that's how i grew up practicing right spread them out different increments and try to land it within maybe you know you don't have to hit the towel but within four feet of the towel is the goal mm-hmm. when you're at an elite level well even like the amateurs are you will you give them some sort of task like hey throw a few towels out and here's your point system i mean are you always trying yeah. to give people that goal or agenda or just saying work on flight and low and get hitting the towel no i i try to cater them to their handicap level so sure. if i have let's say a 10 to 20 handicaps, someone that's trying to break nine, 90, let's say, I'll have them try to hit within, I think it's a 15 foot diameter. So I have four levels that I try to work with on our different assessments. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I might just have them start with 30, 40, 50 as well. Um, If they're like, just trying to break a hundred and then when they're trying to break 90, I'll go up to a hundred. And then when they're trying to break 80, I shrink it down to like about eight feet. I have it all written out if you ever want to see it. Of course. I love that stuff. And the four feet is the elite level trying to break 70. This show is brought to you by Mental Golf Type. And if you haven't heard of Mental Golf Type yet, then you need to go to mentalgolftype.com and check this out out because this is an incredible, powerful mental game of performance system that you can implement very easily because it is tailored to how you and how you are mentally wired. So some of the questions you might have had along the way of why can I perform great on practice? Why do I hit it great on the range and I go on the course and it's something totally different? Why am I inconsistent? Why can I score so well one day and the next is something totally different? Well, all of those questions have to do with how you are mentally wired, how you are using your mental energy, how you're seeing targets, how you're making decisions. This is all stuff that has to do with your mental golf type and you could take your free assessment and figure out a lot of things really quick for absolutely free at mentalgolftype.com so you definitely want to get over there and check that out because I can't even imagine trying to coach players without knowing that information uh, so again check out mentalgolftype.com you won't regret it now let's get to that show yeah I mean that's that's stuff I try to do every day. I mean, here in Chattanooga, I have, you know, just pretty much all junior groups. Um, and I do the same thing. Like I'll set up a basic putting course every day based on skill levels. So I'll change the goal. Like for the elite players, it's, you know, have a like four putts with a, you know, maybe four to six feet. And then five of them are, you know, 30 to 60 type thing. And I'll say like for the elite, like you can't three putter, you got to restart and you got to make three of them type thing. Or, you know, if the skill level changes, then it's, you know, obviously different. You get one three putters, whatever it is, but it's the same, same premise, but I love the new stuff, especially for me. I always like doing new stuff. So any kind of stuff like that, that you have is, you know, is fantastic. You know, one that's um, for me always been a little harder to come up with is um, challenges and scorable stuff like that on, on more of the ball striking side. Mm-hmm ball striking. So like you mentioned, Mike's polls. Mm -hmm. So we have, first of all, we do the track man combine, right? So that's, Mm -hmm. but if people don't have a track man, um, we set up 
uh, like a target right down the middle of the range, about 150 yards out. And then every 15 feet, we have like a green and white stripe pole, then yellow and white is 20 feet, uh, black and white is 25 feet, and then we have another one out at 45 feet. So between those zones is the expected iron shot. We like to have our students hit it inside. So let's say the first one is 15 feet, we're expecting you to hit a pitching wedge um, inside of that zone. All right, and we'll give students 10 balls and how many out of 10 do you get in that zone? This is for the elite level again. So mm -hmm. like when I have my little young gun juniors, I'm just trying to get them to hit 10 balls in the 45 foot zone. Sure. How many out of 10 do you get in there? And we keep track of that. So then back to the elite level, then we go, how many eight irons can you hit between the second pole and the flag? And then six irons for the third pole and the flag. And then the last one's a hybrid or a long iron. And then we also have two 20 yard apart poles way out on a hill for the driver zone. So that's our ball striking test. So it's a total of 50 balls and it's hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we might have kids that are in our elite program. That's our after school full-time training program. They may only get like 10 shots in there. Um, but by the end of the semester, they're cranking it up into the mid twenties. So yeah. Well, yeah. and I think, I think that's important too, though. And that's something at least I try to signify is like, it needs to be hard because you got to expose your weaknesses, especially in practice. But the fact that you said, if they're doing 10 one day and now they're 20, the next, or those kids that, you know, can never get through the wedge challenge and then do, I mean, that's, that's a lot of validation that can build a lot of confidence. I remember this boy, Aiden Kramer, he was a good little junior golfer. He came in one day and he was in tears, like Cheryl. I did the wedge range challenge. I was like, I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I broke the record. So at a point it was like 52, he got like 40. Mm -hmm. And um, the kid was the quietest introverted kid you would ever come across. And he was so excited. I had no idea he was trying to beat this goal, right? He just kind of went out there whenever he came up for lessons and he was trying to beat that goal every time. And nobody encouraged it. It's just something he saw on the board and he wanted to achieve. And he's now at um, Georgia Tech playing. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So do you have um, a philosophy or a, on a kind of a breakdown of how much you like players to work on full swing versus wedges versus putting type thing, or even take that maybe a step further? Um, do you have a breakdown of how much you like them working on their technique versus some of these scorable challenges? I know that's kind of a long question, but. Well, it's a very good question. Um, I try to go off of like the long-term athletic development from Canada. So when they're in those early stages, the active start, mm -hmm. there's no technique. It's just all games, even in fundamental stage, it's probably 80% fun 20% technique. Okay. And then you move to, um, learn to golf. I think it is. And it's like 70% time technique. So as we keep going to the elite level, there's more and more technique. I think the most, I, if I really like getting the technique done right before their growth spurt, like mm -hmm. up until about age 12, I work really hard on getting positions. Correct. And then when they're growing, it's kind of 
it is a little challenging, especially with mm. boys that just string bean up, right? They have like no core <laughs> yeah. engagement. So I kind of work a lot on short game during that time, course management, and just kind of let their bodies. I still work on technique, don't get me wrong, but I like to do it right before that big growth spurt. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, once they're in like the elite level, I would say it's probably 40% technique, 60% short game. Yeah. Is that yeah. Help? Yeah. Um, so even diving deeper into that model, I mean, what, what ages do you think should just be kind of learning to swing and, you know, not really a technique focus? I mean, do you think like oh, eight, nine-year-olds should be working technique? It depends on their, um, developmental level too, and their cognitive level. So just because a kid is eight, doesn't mean they're really ready for that. Mm -hmm. So it really is individualized. Um, but Hey, I've had kids that are amazing swingers by the age of six, Mm -hmm. they can handle it. Like they could take a full half hour lesson and just be fully engaged. But then I have other six-year-olds, they're looking at the bugs and right. So Mm -hmm tough question to answer. And that's just, that's why you have to know the kids and have a relationship with the kids and the family and understand where they are. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. I mean, it's everybody, everybody wants those answers, you know, definitively, but it's, it's a hard one. I don't think there's the right path anywhere for anything. Um, you know, we like the long-term athletic development or PGA coach, because it gives you guidelines, but there's always going to be outliers, right? So you just, as a coach, and as you gain, anyone gains experience, you kind of know when to go head on. We got to work hard mm-hmm. on this technique now. Yeah. So again, that just kind of spurred something in my mind too. So working hard has always been an interesting phrase um, in golf because I've definitely seen, and I've definitely taken part when I was younger in the, I need to be out here for nine hours. Um, and I know flat out when I was young, I didn't know what I was doing. I spent hours out there being probably unproductive to the point where I ended up taking two years off where I didn't want to see a golf club. I didn't want to see a golf ball. I wanted nothing to do with the game. I mean, I experienced that burnout like for real. How old um, were you? I, what's that? Um, that was, this was like just after college. Like I knew I wasn't going to try to play professionally. Um, college kind of burned me out a little bit. And like I said, I was trying so hard to improve and hit that kind of that just as good as I could get, but I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I just was wasting time looking back at it. So it's like, you know, I hear people say like, we gotta, we gotta work harder. We gotta work harder. But I'm like, just spending more time out there is probably not doing much unless you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So, so, so what's your take on that? I, yeah. You, hey, you don't want to waste your time. I wasted a lot of time too. Honestly, I didn't know what I was doing either. And that's why I think Mike says, if you don't get better here, almost shame on us, right? Because we have Mm. everything available to help somebody improve. We know the shortcuts, almost like decade golf. It's taken 10 years off of uh, helping people understand how to play golf better. We have the tools to help you develop a golf swing that took us like 30 years to make, right? Mm -hmm. So training smart, like what you're saying, I think we do a good job of, we don't waste time uh, we know the direction most of the time that people need to take with their golf swing or their short game. And we know if you do the drills and you 
yeah, practice smart, mm -hmm. you should get, you should reach your goal. Um, but there's that level of burnout that you're talking, the psychology part that's very important. And I'm so thankful for the mental golf type that <laughs> has really helped um, me and our whole academy to understand people's personality types because mm -hmm. I mean, I used to get burnt out because I'm very intro. I'm not very introverted, but I am introverted. And if I expose too much of my energy during practice, it's not as effective. So I'm kind of one of those that puts my headphones on and goes in the corner. And when I have juniors like that, I know how to teach them. Yeah. Right. But I also expose them to situations where they got to all right, you're going to be with the chatty person today. You got to deal with it. So I think the psychology part is huge in helping our coaches and kids not get to the burnt out point. Well, I think John is, he's uncovered something just absolutely incredible because it's, it's changed my world with that because I'm the same, like I'm so extroverted that you know, I could, if I'm out there with people playing competition, I probably could have done a lot better, but I was trying to be Tiger Woods. I tried to shut the world out. I tried to be in that quiet zone. And when I'm introverted, I'm just, I exhaust myself and I get frustrated. But the other one, even as a coach, um, I had a hard time with introverted students. Like I would always think that they're, why are they not engaging or are they not enjoying this? So I would like right. overpower it and I would talk more trying to pump them up. <laughs> Sure. Um, so especially in my younger stage, a lot of students I, I lost, which I just didn't understand were, were introverts. And I remember looking back and talking to John through some of this stuff and it was just like, hmm, well, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. They don't want all that talking. <laughs> yeah, no, they don't. They want me to shut up and let them think about what they're doing. And, um, so it makes a lot of sense and I'm, you know, I'm excited to be a part of that and help, help them grow that. Cause it's, I think what that's doing for coaching and golf is incredible. And, um, but that is a big piece of it. But so with the, you know, again, going back to your guys' academy, I mean, you have everything, like you said, to help players. I mean, how important do you think it is? And I have, you know, my beliefs, but how important do you think it is to have that like feedback when they're practicing to help them know they're doing what they want to be doing? Feedback in terms of training aids or oh, you know, whatever. To me, it's almost a waste of time to practice without training aids. Now, not to say that you need to be attached to them, but you should have some kind of station set up to let you know if you're making the right move. And obviously, I mean, you got to step out of there and test it. So I studied a lot under Dr. Rick Jensen and there are four stages, right? The first stage is understanding cause and effect. So the student has to understand what they're doing, why they're doing it. And then B, you have to have supervised practice. That means you've got to have a noodle in the way if you need it, or a camera watching you, or somebody giving you feedback, because feel and real, as we all know, are very different. And we think we're doing something and it's not anywhere like it should look. So then once the look is good, you go to the third stage, which is transfer training. That's the beauty of Mike Bender's MEGSA units. I don't know mm -hmm. if you, you've seen those, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. So that's a perfect supervised station. I know that when my student goes and practices in there, me standing there watching them, it's even better because I'm not watching them and they're having to do it on their own. So they know if they're making the right move. 
Then you can step out in front. There's a mat in front as well. And you can hit some balls and test it out. All right. Is this move transferring? Great. If it is, if not, more time in the supervised practice. And then the fourth level is play. All right. How do we transfer that onto the golf course? And sometimes I take noodles or cones on the golf course because it's a hard transition. The brain just wants to revert back to the old motor pattern. So I'll bring start line poles on the golf course. Like I said, I might bring a cone. Um, I bring a video out for myself to see if I'm transferring my feel. And um, that's how you train a motor pattern, a new motor pattern. That's really good. And I think the one thing that's so brilliant about the stuff you guys use too, is that it doesn't make you do anything. It just essentially gives you the feedback if you're off, which, Correct. you know, the stuff that I've learned in psychology and learning is like, that's important. Essentially, if something does something for you, a training aid, like makes you do emotion like your mind just goes into autopilot and you stop learning. So you might get a couple of good reps, but you know, if you got that like cone behind you and you're swinging and you whap that thing where well, you're going to get immediate feedback, <laughs> but every time you pass it, you're getting that really good rep and it's not like forcing you to do it. You actually have to do it. Um, and that's what I've always really appreciated and the creativity behind a lot of the stuff you guys use and how you use noodles. And um, cause it's nothing, I mean, Mags is obviously a, complex device but i mean the stuff you guys are using mostly on the daily is just a simple like a lima stick or cool noodle yeah that's 100 right we know people can't take the mega units home with them but they yeah. can set up um noodles but you know that gets to another point how many people do you think actually set up their noodles on the range when they leave not a lot no they really <laughs> what's the deal right they're embarrassed a lot mm. of them are embarrassed to set it up or they feel like they might hit something and hurt someone. So that, that is a challenge and you have to be honest with them. Listen, if you're, if you're not going to set it up, how do you expect to get better? Yeah. I think the realest thing we could ever tell people is your willingness to do stuff is going to be kind of what's going to help you get there. I mean, so I was talking to Brian Gathright. Uh, he did, he was on the pod a little while back and he was telling me about a kid that just won a huge tournament, but he said that, the kid's grip was super weak. He was way under and flipping it and he strengthened his grip and the kid hooked it for like two months. Mm -hmm. I mean, just bad hooks, bad hooks until he could get him to stay on top of it. And then he finally like clicked and he started playing incredibly well. And I'm thinking to myself, I know 95% of kids probably would have just been, they would have just given up on it. You know, after even a day or two, I'm just hooking it. I can't hit it straight with this grip. I'm going back. You know, and it's like the That's ones I see technology comes in, right? Yeah. Right. So, and it's like, again, the kids that are the players that you see that are out there doing some drills that maybe look unorthodox, but they don't care. They're like, I know this is going to help me. Um, so I think that's probably a, a portion of that too, is just, are you willing to do that? So even working on, I remember working on a pre-shot routine with a player over putting one time was making her step back every time. And she's just like, this is so tedious. I'm like, well, <laughs> you're asking me how you want to be good. Like this is, you know, you need to actually kind of do this stuff if you're going to do it when you play it. So saying it's tedious in practice is telling me a lot. Right. Yeah. You know, we have, um, we have tons and tons of short game drills and, but we do the five T drill a lot for putting and 
we'll ask our students, okay, go ahead and sit. Oh, when's the last time you did your 5T drill? And they'll be like, oh, I did it last week. Great. Um, what was your score? Um, I forget. Okay. Um, can you go ahead and set it up for me? <laughs> They're like, uh, do I put the T here? I said, you're caught. You, Got em. You're not doing it right. I said, mm -hmm. and then I get on them. You know, so, so just, we, we what's give them the 5T drill? What's that? What, so what's the 5T drill? Oh, the it's um, you put one T down um, three paces from the hole, nine feet. This, the next four T's go an additional two yards away. So you have a nine footer, 15, 21, 27, 33 foot. You put a stick down two feet past the hole and you have to get all three balls either in the hole or in that speed zone. And then you go back to the next tee. If you miss, you have to drop back a tee. Okay, you never have to drop back more than one tee. Now I have four levels to that one. That's a really hard one, but mm -hmm. that's the premise of it. So we find that if you could do that drill really well, you're gonna have very few three putts. Mm -hmm. It's just a really good pace drill. Okay, so, so the stick goes two feet beyond the hole. So yeah. I'm assuming you're saying you can't miss short. At that level. Yeah, that's our elite level. Okay. What would be like more of an amateur level? I'll put the stick two feet short, three feet long. Okay. So you're just, you're just expanding the zone a little bit. Yeah, that's it. And then um, I'll also allow them like in level one of it, I don't make them fall back a tee. Okay. Gotcha. So if they don't fall back a tee, what's the, or is it just, you just have to get a certain amount of the five in there? Um, if they don't fall back a tee, they have to stay at that tee. Oh, I got you. Okay. I see. So they get the allotted number there. That's good. Well, it's another one I'm stealing from you. Yeah. I'll send you <laughs> oh. that one. Um, so these tests, um, you know, again, we can do tests till we are blue in the face, but if somebody keeps failing, we obviously there's something's up, you know, so, something's got to get better with the speed. So mm -hmm. speed control and putting I'm always fascinated with and how, other people kind of work on other players and most players I ask, which is interesting, even in the, all the way up to the PJ level. And I say like, you know, what do you, what drills you do for speed control? And I'll say, well, just stuff like that. They're essentially all put, I'll do leapfrog. I'll put sticks. I'm like, well, what if you can't do it? Like, what are you doing to actually get that speed better? So what do you, what do you do with players to help them learn to control speed? Well, I use the sand putt lab. So I just make sure that they're hitting it in the center, that their mm -hmm. tempo is pretty consistent. And, um, visually you can see if they're the length of their stroke is pretty symmetrical. A lot of people are short and they are long or long and mm -hmm. short. So I try to keep it pretty symmetrical. So I'll definitely refer to technique if they're really struggling. And if the technique all looks good, well, then they just got to practice more. They've got to sure. work on their feel and touch and, I'll have people just toss balls in buckets, get some feel and touch going. Um, I like, I like um, one of my favorite things to do, I learned it from P and Lynn is um, have them close their eyes, like look at a hole, let's say there's a hole 20 feet out, get a good stare, get the picture in your brain and then close your eyes, walk to the hole and put your putter right in the hole. Mm -hmm. And pretty much every time they come up like, 
three, four feet short. That's interesting. Yeah. It's like their perception is like the hole is closer to them. So they have to get that perception um, correct in their brain. And then sometimes they'll work on, well, how many seconds do you think that putt will take? Well, I don't know. Okay. Well, let's, let's count it. Right. And it gets them thinking, all right, uphill putts, it takes fewer seconds to get there. Downhill putts, it takes a lot more time. Um, and I have them talk out the, the putt too. I say, well, how many feet do you think it is? 30 feet. What's the break doing? It's going from right to left, get it in their brain. And then, okay, where are you going to aim? I'm going to aim a foot right. Perfect. So people don't take the time to do that. And mm -hmm. you have to coach them through getting all of that information into the brain. And then it should help them to perform better. Yeah. The Lynn and Peel one's interesting. So I did a camp with um, Dr. Joe Parent, uh, Zen golf, um, what was this, two, three years ago. And he did a similar version. He would have somebody kind of look at the hole and then close their eyes and throw a ball there. So it was a very similar thing, but most people actually got pretty close, which was interesting. Like they were able to do yeah. it kind of like eyes closed. So he started to have people just like toss a ball to each other, like stare at yourself, you know, kind of close your eyes and throw a ball. And people were very accurate with that. And then he had to do it to an actual hole. It's like, huh, that's really fascinating. So that's, that's a good one. I've never, never so he's heard saying the... like, he's saying like, you have the, um, innate ability to do it. Your mm -hmm. brain has been trained for that before. So why doesn't it come out when you putt? Yeah. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it is fascinating. And that's where I kind of go back to, you know, if it's technique where they're getting the ball to bounce off the face or yeah. even hitting the center of the face, I, I regrettably didn't even take that much stock in that until a few years ago, I started seeing how important it actually is to hit the center of the face for speed control. Uh, that's pretty wild. Like I was always like, ah, oh, it's a little toe, a little heel, not a big deal, but it seems to be a pretty big deal. It's a big deal, especially on the longer putts. Yeah. It adds up. Just yeah, think of wild. how when you hit an off-center driver, right? Mm. <laughs> it's like 20 yards less. Yeah. So before we move on with that, any other really good, um, well, even short game ones, because those are always ones I could use more of, like any favorite kind of short game drills or things you guys like to use on the daily? Yeah, I mean, we do um, kind of for the basic level, like we find that just a basic chipping shot is very difficult for even our better players to do. You got to do the, the easy things well. And a lot of times they don't do those fundamentals well. So we'll do a, a drill we call the shag bag drill where you literally stay in one spot. So it's very blocked practice and you chip 10 balls. Let's say we want you to use a nine iron to a far hole and you've got to get all 10 within whatever we decide, usually about three feet. The ones that are not within three feet, you go pick them up. So let's say you got six in and four not, you bring the four back and you do it until you get all four in. So again, that's very blocked practice, but we like them doing drills like that. And we, you can extend that out to a pitch shot too, and just give them a bigger zone. Um, Another thing that I love to do is have my students have three balls. I give them, an, I let them choose the easy, the medium and the hard shot, hard shot. And they have two lives. 
<clears throat> so if they don't get it within the designated zone, they lose a life. And I want to see if they can get through all nine balls without losing the two lives. That's a really good one. I like that. Yeah. This is perfect, Cheryl. See, this is this is why I wanted to talk to you. Selfishly, I'm taking away a bunch of stuff for myself. <laughs> yeah, that's a, I love that one. You could do that at any skill level. You may want to give a newer golfer four lives, okay? But the better golfers only get two. So one of my one of my sayings has always been, I don't know if this is my saying, but I've never really heard anybody else say, but I'm sure somebody else has. But too much loft and too big of swings is the death of short game. Like, how do you feel about that? Like I, I, for most players, unless they're really, really good, I hate 60 degree wedges. I've never seen so much air, especially in young players, but then grabbing a 60 and trying to take big swings and they just can't do it. It's, um, we're definitely, uh, believers in the lower, the better. Mm -hmm. Um, and we explain it like, okay, if you had a, a foul shot versus a layup, which one would you rather have? Everybody says a layup. Why? Well, because it's shorter. Well, when you take less loft, you can land it shorter onto the green. You have less swing. It requires less feel, less touch. So let's go that route. And, um, you know, I do have some really good players that like to be good with one club. And I get that. And they're really good with that one club. Mm -hmm. So that's fine. But I do make them try a new shot every week. And just so that you know, one day they might need that nine iron chip. So, mm. well, and I think that's important. all you can do is lead the horse to water, right? <laughs> well, so Cheryl, I was that player. So I grew up, um, I don't want to get my whole backstory just for time here, but I mean, I, I didn't, we didn't have a ton of money. So I, I worked at a golf shop that built knockoff clubs and I, I just had a 56 degree wide. So that's all I had. So I learned how to play every shot with that. Um, I definitely had an eight iron bump and run, but everything else was 56. I either closed it down and ran it, or I opened it up and flopped it, whatever. So uh, that was always my theory is, Oh, just get good with one club. But I would see so many players. That was your Swiss army knife. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But as I've grown and matured and coached more, you know, I started like grabbing a 50 degree and running it for certain areas. I'm like, huh, that seems a lot easier than trying to (laughs) hood my 56 that much more. So, I mean, I've definitely learn from that. So I'll, I'll give the Testament that, you know, it's, it's wise to have that toolbox and those other shots. Like you said, even if you don't need them all the time, I mean, I used to kind of mock people for using hybrids in certain areas, but I mean, I've seen so many players so good with that. I'm like, why am I mocking that? That's, that's a brilliant move. If a player is good with it. You know, I do use coach now at all. I, you know, I used to, and I just stopped, I just wasn't using it a ton anymore. So I kind of stopped my subscription. I still have it and I still have a bunch of player stuff on it, but I just, I don't have my, my subscription current. Well, um, I use it a lot cause I do teach a lot of juniors and I like their families to see what I put on there, but, um, I'll post maybe a shot that Rory hit, uh, with a little nine iron chip and ask them, oh, what do you think of this? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Just kind of throwing some, sprinkling some things out there. I try to use, and I, I try to throw in experiences that didn't go well too. Oh, what, what do you think um, that player should have done? Yeah. I mean, that's, again, that's, that's so brilliant. That's, that's stuff I've, 
learning to do better. I'm not trying to impose my will as much anymore. It's, it's more of just, you know, I want to help a player essentially find their best way, I guess is the best way to do it. And sometimes they do things differently than me. And then I've just, that's fine. Go for it. If you're really good at that, do it. Um, as long as you're scoring, I mean, to me, I, I could care less as long as you're confident, you can do what you want to do and you have kind of your way of doing it. Um, I think it's important because again, I go back to a young egotistical coach. I was, um, it was a, it had to be my way, you know, sure. it's just, it was, you have That's to do things my that. way. What's That's that? All you knew. That's all you knew then. Yeah. Right. I mean, it was, though. I mean, it was, you got to use a 56 degree and you got to do it. Like I do it. Stop using nine errors to pitch. I mean, it was the dumbest thing ever, but you okay. know, we, we, we learn and we evolve, but, um, so now, I mean, so the other thing that I really would like to talk about is you yourself now with all the time you teach qualified for, um, was it the U S senior open, right? Yes. So how the hell did you do that? Well, it was funny. Um, I hadn't played a lot in my, since I had my daughter, Callie, like I, I competed a lot before I had her. She's 16 now. Um, I, and I missed that part, but I was being a mom and my daughter has special needs. So I spend a lot of time working on things with her and that, but I got ignited when the senior open announced that they were going to be at Brooklawn country club, which is 10 minutes from where I grew up in Connecticut. I was like, wow, that would be really cool. I, for some reason that reignited me, I wanted to qualify for that. So I started practicing again and then COVID hit and it was canceled. I was like, oh man, I hope they go back to Brooklawn. They'll probably go somewhere else now. And then they said, they're going to go back to Brooklawn. I'm like, yes. So again, I just practiced whenever I could, which is not much. Um, and then every summer we come up to Lake Placid, New York. My family's up here in the summer and I can practice and play. So I got a good three weeks of practice and play in and I went to the qualifier and I just made it. <laughs> What, what did you shoot? I, I shot 77. I was like, I called Lauren after I go, I screwed up. <laughs> I was so sad. And I said, oh, well, it is what it is. I still have a good life. Yeah. <laughs> and then everybody started like double bowing in the last hole and I got in. I was like, wow. And so anyhow, I went and played and I was like, okay, my goal is to make the cut. And then I made the cut. And then I'm like, boy, I'm, I'm actually playing pretty well and I'm hitting it better than most. <laughs> I'm like, let's go for top 20. And then I don't have to qualify next year. So that was my next goal. And then, yeah, I finished 17th. So it was a remarkable week. That's amazing. So you get that qualifies you for this year. Yeah. It's going to be in Ohio in August. Awesome. So again, I'm assuming you weren't playing a lot leading up to that. So how did you spend that, that couple of weeks then to prepare for that? Yeah, I just grinded. I hit, I hit <laughs> so many golf balls, putted and chipped every night. Um, what really helped me that week too, was I was in good shape because it's very hilly up here. And I walked everything, pushed that cart. And when I got to Brooklawn, it was pretty hilly. And a lot of people were getting tired. Mm. Now we're in our fifties it's harder. Mm -hmm. 
and I wasn't tired at all. So being in good shape is definitely a strength. Yeah. And I'm not in great shape, but I'm in good shape. Yeah. Were you nervous? Yeah. All I did on the first (laughs) two holes was breathe. That's all I did. I just breathed. And then I was fine, but I was nervous. Yeah. I wanted to do well. I had a lot of family and friends out there and, but it's funny. I really thrive on people watching. I I do get energized being introverted. You'd be surprised, but I kind of like, I feel their energy. Yeah. I know they want me to do well and it makes me feel good. I, I'm a, you're probably an IF of some point, right? Are you a feeler? I am an F. I S F J. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause I mean, introverted feeling, I think is your first mode. So that's, we like that stuff. We like mm-hmm. validation. We like to show off for people. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah. I'm a that's show so off. cool. I mean, that's really cool. Um, so obviously you're playing this year. I mean, so are you getting ready for that now? Already starting to practice and. Oh yeah. Um, I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. So new goal this year. I want to try and make the cut again. And then I want to go top 10. <laughs> that's awesome. Get in so, the top 10. I think that this would be a good message for, you know, players that compete, you know, when you go into a tournament, that's, I guess, a big tournament. Like, how did you set your expectations? Like, how did you approach it? Cause I know that's a question we get a lot, right. Especially if a, if a player gets into a bigger tournament or they're nervous, it's like, how do I mentally approach this thing? What should my expectations be? I rely a lot on my past with my mm-hmm. profile And I've had success from the way I've done things in the past. And I just did everything that I did in the past. And I breathe before I go, I do a very like 20 minute deep breathing exercise because it calms me down Mm -hmm. and I get very present. It's all about being in the moment for me. So Mm -hmm. when I can get in that space and I'm not worrying about what my score is going to be or what people will think I'm okay. So I know my weaknesses, right? So I have a shortcut in a way I've been through it. I know what works well for me and my swing has held up. I just needed to practice it and get it stronger. Right. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So what's that? Like, do you do kind of four by four breathing? Do you have a kind of a method of, of breathing. Cause I mean, that's something that I think that's overlooked. I know John and I talk about it a ton, but it's so easy to say I'm breathing, whatever. <laughs> I know I used to listen to a tape, a cassette tape before I went to every tournament back when I was in my young thirties. Interesting. And it was just, I can't even describe it. It was just this weird music and I was breathing. <laughs> Lauren would drive the car and he's just like, whatever. Right. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I'm in my own little world and I, um, I don't need music or anything. I just breathe to the way my body kind of wants me to breathe. Interesting. Yeah. It's funny how we all have our little course. I used to listen to like just motivational talks because that just would fire me up. You know, it's always got the like motivational music in the background. Okay. Uh, I listen to Eric Thomas a lot. I don't know if you know Eric Thomas is. 
Um, he's, I think he's known as E.T., the hip-hop preacher. I'm sure you've heard his clips. They're, they're usually all over the place. He's this, like, big black dude that just, like, he's just so okay, I've seen powerful and emotional. Yeah, he always wears yeah. a Detroit Tigers hat, the gold English D. Um, dude was homeless and, you know, worked himself into this big star now. I mean, he's just an incredibly inspirational guy. But I listen to him a lot. I listen to, like, movie quotes. But that stuff would, like, always just fire me up. Um, but I think, again, that's important for people to have, you know, their own way of getting prepared. And, um, you know, I think an important one too is, is, you know, and I've learned this from John mostly, but nerves and, um, I mean, nerves and excitement are the same thing. We just look at nerve, like if we just look at like, oh, I'm nervous. My heart's beating. That's a bad thing. Right. You know, it could be very exciting. I mean, I've performed a lot of times my best, but I feel sick to my stomach. Definitely. (laughs) A lot of people play well when they're just sick. Yeah. You know, I had my mindset that week too was I was just going to accept whatever came my way. And I really did a good job of that. I mean, I had a bad first tea time. Like I had to play in the rain. I just accepted it. Had to play 27 holes the next day. I accepted it. I didn't compare myself at all. Um, I missed a three footer. I accepted it, made a 50 foot bomb on the next hole. So that is a very key word for all of our students. And it's something we have to keep teaching them through training them. Can't say enough about that word. Oh, it's so important. I'll give you, I'll give you a quick example here. I'm not going to name names, but um, because I like this guy a lot, but I caddy for someone in a corn fairy event. He's not my student, but I've just gotten to know him through whatever but they were in town and he's such a good player and usually such a good attitude off the course but he within a few holes or he started two under we turned it two under in the first day and then he missed a very easy birdie putt on 11 and it started with the here we go again talk um, and I was like uh-oh and then next hole was bad and then I started hearing him mumble to himself and then he all of a sudden he went talk to me for three holes and I'm just like holy cow like you just kind of saw it coming and then a weather delay came and it was every excuse in the book. It's always yeah. a weather delay of everything. I'm just like, wow. And then I'm seeing the ones that are doing well. They're just over there kind of, you know, just hanging out, having a snack, chatting. And I'm just looking at this guy. I'm like, you're so talented and you're doing this for yourself. And I give him credit too. After he calmed down and we talked about it after he missed the cut. And I just kind of told him flat out. It's like, dude, you did that to yourself. And he's just like, I know. He's like, it's such bad energy. <laughs> so he accepted it, but what could he have, what did he learn from it? What, what's he going to stop doing and what's he going to start doing? Well, it, the words he used are good, but I don't think he did it. You know, I mean, he, he asked me flat out and I just said, you have to exactly what you said. We had that acceptance talk. I just said, we, cause he's actually, it's funny. The first time I met him too, he's a, he's a big guy from California. He's got tattoos um and I just looked at him like you are you a boxer or you did something I mean he's trained in like martial arts and all kinds of stuff so he's a fighter and I just said look man like golf's a fight all these guys are good you're in a fight you're gonna get punched in the face a few times mm, like are, if you get punched in a fighter you're gonna just lay down and give up like no you're not you're gonna fight your way through it and that's I mean this guy's had to fight his whole life he's got an incredible story but um but yeah so I mean that was the thing and he he played better the next week but that's something that I think he's fully aware he needs to get over is that just negative energy and, um, you know, I'm the victim type mentality. Cause that's what it was. I, I, he was the victim out there. Everything's against me. The weather's against me. At one point 
he was like every time i had a shot the wind changes yes i'm like come on man <laughs> that, yeah he really needs um a lot of training out of that victim state it's mm-hmm. i had a 13 year old boy giving me those same examples and i was like oh here we go so i talked to the parents about it mm-hmm. like just so you know we gotta nip this in the bud right now yeah you know, and it's wild too. I mean, how much do you think that plays into just how the youth is growing up these days? Cause I definitely see that attitude a lot more nowadays. Everything's against me. Mm. It's definitely out there for sure. Yeah. I'm just. Um... And maybe it's not as bad, but I, maybe I just notice it more, but it's definitely out there, but I also notice a lot of the good, really good traits, I guess mm-hmm. I want to say, right? It's mm-hmm. probably 50, 50. Yeah. It's the growth mindset, right? It's growth versus yeah. mindset right there. And, uh, I try to educate all my juniors on that growth mindset. Have yeah. I actually, I actually just saw you do a, p- a post on that as I was scrolling for that riddle. <laughs> Um, but you want to just, I mean, you want to explain that just real quick in case nobody knows what that means. Yeah. That's Carol Dweck's theory, right? Mm -hmm. Either people think they're, they're either born with or without talent. Mm -hmm. That's basically what it comes down to. And so people get afraid if they don't have the talent, if they're not as good as somebody else, they're just going to be like, uh, I can't do it. Whereas growth mindset, people will be like, I'll get there. I don't know when, but I'm going to get there. So that's how you got to educate any child. I mean, I'm just going to use my daughter real quick as an example. But when she was born, right, she had Down syndrome. Well, the doctor told me, he goes, Cheryl, don't ever put her on a swing. What? Don't ever put her on. She'll never be able to swing. God. Okay. Right. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then, um, a lot of people were like, oh, sorry. And I'll never forget my friend, Connie Chillamy. She had a sister with Down syndrome and I called her and she goes like this. Yay, right? She was so happy I had this child with Down syndrome. But that mindset right there is what changed me completely because I could have gone, oh, this could be really rough mm-hmm. to this is going to be great. So that's what I try to do with all of my students. Okay, right mm-hmm. there. Because some kids go down this journey, like that kid's beaten me already. I'm never going to be that good. No, look at these examples and you have to be ready. This is a long, what do they call that? A long journey sport. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter who's winning right now. And that's what I have to get across to all these parents too. You and I, you know it. It doesn't matter if your child wins at eight years old. Right. Forget all that crap. Look at this stuff. Look at these great athletes who have developed. They were athletes first. Your child will get there. I don't know when, but they will get there. And you have to have that belief too. So much is in our mindset. And uh, I forget where we were going with that, but. No, I mean, it was, you know, kind of, again, the the victim mentality growth mindset, but, uh, you know, I'll give you a good example too. And anybody that's heard me talk, probably heard me talk about, I got Jordan Hahn, who's six, eight uh arguably six nine so he grew um i mean like a legitimate foot in one winter so when you were talking earlier about you know getting uncoordinated it was bad i mean he was a kid yeah. that shot mid 70s um when he hit his growth spurt i mean he 
I don't know if he could break 80 for a good while. And it was bad. I was like, these guys are going to leave me. You know, I'm going to lose this kid. I I mean, I loved him to death. They're a great family. I still work with them. Um, But I remember, you know, he's kind of going through that and he just started getting all sobby one day. Um, And his dad was out there too. And I was like, huh, this might be where they fire me (laughs) because his dad hardly ever came out, but he just wanted to see what we were doing and talking about. And, um, and Jordan kind of gave me the, oh, well, there's no good tall golfers. And I just looked at him and be like, be the first, be the first. Yeah. You know, be the first dude. Like, and he is, he's actually the tallest ever recorded to make a PJ start now. Actually, I think somebody might've backed him off, but he qualified for the Valspar, uh, last year and was, I mean, he was getting some press for being the tallest player to ever make a PJ tour star, which is cool. And now he's playing PJ tour Canada, but you know, his dad's an engineer coaching moment that I hope you give yourself a lot of credit for but that one line right there changed his whole perspective I hope so I don't know you know I never like to to give myself too much credit because I'm sure he'd probably be good without me but um but I remember looking at his dad I'm like because his dad's a really smart engineer and I just I looked at him and I go what's the mechanical advantage he has over me at six eight versus me at like six foot he does math he's like well probably about 35 percent I'm like, there you go, man. Like for every hundred yards, you're going to hit 30 some yards by me. And I mean, he legitimately averages 347, I think was his latest off the tee. I mean, when he goes after it, if, if you can get wild, if he really goes after it, but I mean, he can hit at 360, 365. So, I mean, he's got such an advantage out there. I mean, he cracks a driver face every, every month. He hits it so hard, but wow. um, if he can, if he can just always dial in his putting, that's, I mean, he's going to be one of the best out there, which is cool. But I mean, I, you know, that was one of those defining moments I'll never forget because looking the change on his face of like, you know, from this is, um, there's nobody like that to, you know, I could be, well, I could really do something special. I think it's cool, but that's, that just alludes into what you're saying. And anybody listening to this, you know, is following that same thing You'd be the first or whatever you want to be. That's right. That was such a good moment. Yeah. Well, Cheryl, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I really appreciate you coming on. And um, I've gotten some awesome stuff out of this. And if you're willing to send any of those drills or anything, I'd love to incorporate that stuff. But I really appreciate it. I think it's a great episode for parents, for kids, for anybody, amateurs to listen to because so much great stuff. You guys are the best in the world, I think, at coaching, developing, practice. I mean, so much good stuff at Bender's Academy. Um, People need to check you guys out if they they don't know you. But really, thank you you so much. Thank you. Well, you guys Kyle. are awesome. I mean, absolutely. So thanks again for taking time. I know you're on, on break, but, uh, and we'll wish you the best of luck in this year's open. Thank you. Thanks, Cheryl. <laughs> Bye-bye. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of this episode. I hope you got some incredibly good stuff out of this. It would be awesome if you really find value in this podcast and you drop us a five-star review, uh, leave a comment. It really helps continue to grow. It helps us get great guests on the show, which essentially is going to bring you some of the best information. That is the journey of Behind the Swing is to get the absolute best out of these people, players, coaches, fitness people, you know, whoever we can find that's going to give you great information to help you grow in your golf game. So again, thank you for following us. We'll see you in that next episode.